So today's reading is, ooh, I didn't put the reference on my paper. First uh, Samuel 18, um, or sorry, First Samuel, yeah, 18, 1 through 12. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang a song to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down the thousands and David the ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can, have, can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Please be seated. So uh, last week, uh, Jay uh, preached on 1 Samuel 17, uh, one of the more uh, famous stories in Scripture, the story of uh, David versus Goliath. And, uh, and uh, I imagine that for, for some of you, uh, maybe you've actually never heard somebody preach on, on the story of David versus Goliath before, because it's one of those really popular stories in Scripture, and sometimes pastors or preachers will stay away from the popular ones because they want to be a little bit more innovative or creative, and so they don't really deal with stuff like, like that. But So maybe you never heard a sermon on that, maybe you have. Um, some of you, maybe uh, you didn't grow up in the church, but even though you didn't, you, you have heard of David and Goliath. It's such a well-known story, right? This, this idea, this, this youth coming and standing uh, between the Israel army and, and standing before this, this giant named Goliath and slaying him. And, and it's such a, you know, a powerful uh, a story that, that really uh, uh, you know, grabs people's attention. For some of you, though, it, it may be you respond to that story like I respond to it. Uh, when I hear the story of David and Goliath, I go back to Sunday school. I grew up in the church, and so for me, this story, it takes me back to uh, a little classroom in, in the basement of a church building, and, uh, and, and I'm sitting on a little tiny chair, and I'm looking up at an elderly man standing in front of, 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 of a felt board, uh, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm watching the story of David and Goliath unfold in felt before my eyes. Uh, for those of you, uh, how, how many of you... Uh, when you heard the story of David and Goliath, you, you saw it on a flannel graph as a kid. Cool. How many of you uh, actually taught the story of David and Goliath using a flannel graph before? All right. Yes. Okay. How many of you have never heard of a flannel graph before? All right. So just in case, 
There's somebody out there who doesn't know what a flannel graph is. A flannel graph is uh, it's basically it's a piece of cardboard with uh, some, some uh, flannel or felt stretched over it. And, uh, and it's usually sort of a generic scene that's used for a bunch of different Bible stories. But then uh, there's all of these felt pieces cut out that you use uh, to, uh, to, 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 to display this scene that the Bible is, is, is going to unfold for you. So like there's bushes and there's trees or there's rocks or tents or you know, mountains, whatever the story is. So the backdrop is put up there. And then there's all these biblical characters or what people imagine these biblical characters look like. And uh, they're also cut out of felt and they're in various poses or whatever, uh, to, to convey the message of, of the story. And so somebody, uh, a Sunday school teacher, will, will read the story or explain this biblical story. And as they do, they're putting up these, these, these felt things up on the, the flannel graph. And, and, and this really was, you know, when it came out, this was, I mean, this was PowerPoint for kids. Like, this is, this is the cutting edge uh, theological instruction for children. This was, this was uh, really awesome stuff. And so um, when we took uh, possession of this building, uh, there was a bunch of things that were kind of being thrown out. And uh, in a pile of things that were, were going to be thrown out, I found a flannel graph set. And I took it home. So I, uh, I, I pulled it out this week, and I was, I was looking at the, the book that accompanies these flannel graph stories. And, uh, and, and with every story, there's the, there's the title of the story, and then there's the biblical reference for it, and then uh, there's the, the goal or the big idea or the point that the Sunday school teacher is trying to get across to these kids through this Bible story. And I'll, I want to point out three of them uh, to you. Uh, the first one, uh, so the story of Abraham being called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? The, the, the aim of that story, according to the Sunday school book, the aim that, that's supposed to be taught is this, that even if it's difficult, we must ask God to help us obey. Now, is that true? Yeah. Is that the point of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Another story, the, you know, take the, the, the Noah story, the, the flood story, right? The, the main idea to be taught through that story according to the Sunday School book, is this, that we should follow all of God's directions to us and his blessings will follow. Is that the point? God sends this huge act of destruction and he saves one family through the flood. Is that the point? Check out the one on the, on the story of the crucifixion. This is, this is the point of the story of the crucifixion from this book, that we should always do right even if it's not popular to do so. Like that's the story of the cross? Um, some of you might be you know, reflecting on this, and you might go back to your own childhood and Sunday school experience, and you're like, like that's kind of what I, I was taught in Sunday school. Like there was a bunch of moralistic sort of shoulds and musts uh, being thrown at you, a lot, of, a lot of behavior modification sort of things. And, and oftentimes, you know, this is the result of how we approach the Bible, is that um, we, we take these, pip, these people... Uh, these, these biblical characters, and we, we elevate them, and we say things like, well, well here's Abraham, and Abraham, uh, he waited a long time for God to fulfill a promise. He was, Abraham was really patient. Be like Abraham. He was patient. Or, or here's Moses, and Moses, he approached the burning bush where God was, and he took off his sandals. He's very reverent to God. Be like Moses and be reverent to God. Or, or, or Daniel. Daniel was a dreamer. Dream the dreams of God. 
There's all these things, including the story of David. Be like David. David was strong and courageous, and he stood before a giant, and he slew the giant. And you will have giants in your lifetime, and they will stand before you, and you need to have courage and faith, and you slay those giants. Is that the point of the Bible? See, the reality is, is what the Bible teaches us is this command of God, be holy because I'm holy. And the bar is set, be holy. And we come to the Bible and we think that, that it's about making us more moral, it's about making us better people, it's about making us meet the standard of God so that we can be approved by God. And so we look at all these people and we're like, we emulate this person and do what that person does and so that you become like these people and then you'll be accepted by God. The point of scripture actually is this, you can't be holy. Because of the fall, you are not holy. Because of your sin and rebellion against God, there is nothing that you can do to gain the approval of God. Because when you look at Scripture, every single one of those people failed. Adam failed. Moses failed. Ruth, Esther, David failed. Don't be like David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. The point of of these characters in the Bible isn't say, hey, look at me, be like me. The point of all these characters is, hey, look at Jesus. Because in all of Scripture, there is one who is holy. There is one who is innocent. There is one who is righteous. The Son of God takes on flesh and he comes and he lives the life that no biblical character ever lived, that none of us could ever possibly live. Innocent and perfect and righteous. And he takes that life and he goes to the cross and he offers it up as a sacrifice to God. And in so doing, that if you embrace Jesus at the cross, that's where holiness comes from. He gives you his righteousness. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And scripture doesn't teach that you can gain the approval of God by being like David or being like anybody else. The only way is to embrace Jesus and what he did for you and what he did for me. When we look at the story of David and Goliath, Jesus is a better David. He's a better David. He's the one who who comes to us in weakness. And he's the one who stands before the enemy unarmed or uh, unclothed in armor. Jesus is the better David with boldness and courage. And he faces down the bigger of Goliath of sin and death. But Jesus is also the better stone. He's the, the, the cornerstone. He's, he is the, the, the stone on, on which the builders rejected. He, he's the rock, and he's the one that flies at, at, at this giant of sin and death and destroys sin and death for us. Jesus is the better David, and the cross is the place that we experience the defeat of a worse giant that we face in sin and death. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 18, uh, 18, 19, and 20. Um, and I know that that's a lot, but um, we're not going to go very, very deep into the passage. Um, I'm going to pull out some things. I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm going to trust, though, that you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't, you could download a free app. But I'm going to trust that you are going to, to, to read this and study it for yourself, do some self-feeding, some self-nourishment, uh, and, uh, and that you understand that this is God's word to you, not God's word to me filtered to you, okay? So uh, I'm going to summarize it a little bit. I'm going to pull out some things. But where I want to begin this morning is this idea that uh, we, we find ourselves at just after the defeat of Goliath. And uh, just after uh, David has, has, has destroyed Goliath, and there's a conversation that's had between him and Saul And it's from this point that we see two different responses to 
the destruction of Goliath. Two different ways that people have seen this event, and there's the way of Jonathan, and there's the way of Saul. And, and when we look at this today, I want to point out the fact that, that Jesus is the better David in what he does for us at the cross, that there are also two different responses that people can have to that. So we're going to get into it. So if you look with me, uh, beginning of chapter 18, verse 1, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So uh, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at Jonathan a little bit. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. He is heir to the throne. Um, he is he's a pretty courageous guy. He's, he's, he's a, a man of war. Um, he's not a, as afraid of people uh, as, as Saul is, uh, the opinions of people. Um, and uh, and he's, he's a very likable, uh, uh, you know, courageous kind of guy. And so um, we, we see him uh, here in, in the passage, and, uh, and he witnesses the death of Goliath at the hands of David. He witnesses this event. And as the result of this, he sees David and he loves David. He, he sees that, that here is this, this young man, this, this youth, and he goes out and he stands in the gap between him and the greatest enemy he has ever faced. And he stands in this place with courage and without armor and he slays this giant. And what he sees in that moment is that salvation is delivered at the hands of this youth. His salvation. He, along with all the Israelite army, he is saved by this event. And he sees this unfolding for him, and he loves David. There's two side notes uh, when we talk about this verse. The first is this. Some people uh, look at this verse, and, uh, and, and there's a couple others like it in 1 Samuel. And they walk away with this idea that the nature of the relationship between uh, David and Jonathan was a homosexual relationship. And that's not founded by Scripture. It's not founded by Scripture. What is happening is that oftentimes people are reading our own culture into Scripture. And we live in an over-sexualized culture that reads sort of things like this into Scripture. This is not a homosexual relationship. Tim Chester writes this about it. He says, the reality is that men can have an intimate and affectionate friendship without it becoming sexual. We live in a culture that, that, that men don't do this. Oftentimes, we don't have deep bonds with one another, and we need them. Second thing to say about uh, this verse, when we look at Jonathan and David, uh, we tend to think that they're roughly the same age. They weren't. When you get into the text, you start, start pulling it apart, what you find is uh, David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. Uh, Jonathan was already a commander in Saul's army in the third year of Saul's reign. Uh, a man needed to be at least 20 years old before he could be a foot soldier in the Israelite army. And when you start putting all this stuff together, what you, what you find out is that uh, uh, Jonathan needed to be at least 27 years older than David. At least 27 years old. That means that, that Jonathan was old enough to be David's father. And so he, he sees this event unfold before him, and he, and he, and he looks at David, and, and he's not... He's not looking down on him because he's younger. He's not looking down on him at all. He's old enough to be his dad, and, and, and he still, he, he loves David. It's the first thing I want us to see here. If you'll skip down to verses three and four, it says this. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. 
Jonathan loved David. Jonathan also honored David. See, what is happening here is that this robe that Jonathan is wearing, the armor, the sword, the belt, all of these things are symbols of his identity as the future king of Israel. These are things that, that, that he wears that demonstrates to everybody around him what his identity is. And he is going to be the hereditary replacement of Saul. He's the future king. And what is Jonathan doing? He's taking these things off and he's giving them to David. He's taking the glory that is on him and he's giving it to David. He's honoring David. Third thing to see, going back to verse uh, one, the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Um, there's another place where this language is used, and it's in Genesis, with a man named Jacob in regards to his son, Benjamin. Um, Benjamin's mom died in giving birth to him. Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's children. He is the prized boy uh, of Jacob's children. He loved this boy, and so this idea of his soul being knit to Benjamin, like he would give his life for Benjamin. There's, there's a, a moment where he believes that Benjamin might be lost, and he is devastated by this thought, that, that, that his soul is so um, knit and, and bound to his son Benjamin. And this is the same language that's being used of, of Jonathan, Jonathan towards, towards David. It's, it's no longer Jonathan who he's living for, it's Jonathan's now living for David. That his, his life is bound up with David's. Jonathan bound himself to David. The third thing to see there. When we look at all of this, when we look at uh, all of these three chapters and you look sort of be, between the lines of what is happening between Jonathan and David, what we understand is that um, Jonathan is relinquishing. Jonathan is, is giving up the throne to David. Jonathan is recognizing that David is the anointed one, that he's the one that God has chosen to lead Israel. And Jonathan has decided that he would rather be the friend to the king than to be a false king himself. He, he gives up the throne to David, willingly and voluntarily, because he sees that David is the one God has chosen. And so some, he essentially gives up this throne. Now, this is not the response of Saul. Saul also witnessed this event of David defeating Goliath. Saul also saw this youth go out and stand in the gap between him and the greatest enemy he has ever seen. And he, he sees what David does that day and how he destroys this enemy. He is witness to the salvation that David has wrought for him and for his army. And he comes away completely with a completely different attitude towards David. Look at verse 2 with me. He says this. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul took David. In 14, uh, verse 52, we learn this about Saul, that Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he would attach himself to him. In other words, he saw in David a weapon. He saw in David uh, a soldier he could own, that he could possess, that he could put to his use. See, Saul used David. He set him over um, as a commander of his troops and sent him into combat, uh, believing that, that, that David would win and he would get the glory for that. But that's not actually what happened. He began by using David, but that's not where it stayed. 
Next thing we see is Saul becoming jealous of David. In verse 7, it says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. All of a sudden, the people are singing a song about the greatness of David's victories. And all of a sudden, it's, it's David who is coming to the foreground. It's David who is being elevated, not Saul. So he's becoming jealous of David. And jealousy leads to paranoia. We look in uh, verses 10 and 11, and what we see is that uh, there David is, and he's, he's in the presence of Saul. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that uh, God didn't send David to remove Saul from the kingdom. God didn't send David to, to overthrow Saul. God would take care of Saul himself. God actually sent David to serve Saul. And so there David is, he is serving Saul, and he's playing the lyre. Maybe he's singing, but then this, this, this harmful spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, and he picks up the spear that's in his hand, and he throws it at David. He attempts to pin him to the wall, it says, because he's paranoid. He thinks that David has come to steal the kingdom away from him. So I want to talk uh, for a moment about um, these spirits that we see that Saul wrestles with. Um, uh, we, we first see uh, the spirit of the Lord coming on Saul early on when he is first appointed as king. Samuel told him that he would go out and he would meet some prophets coming down from a high place and, and that when he did that, the spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he would begin to prophesy. Now in that instance, what that, what that means is that he is beginning to proclaim the words of God. Right? So he's, he's prophesying in that instance. Um, a little while later, uh, uh, the, the Ammonites surround the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And Saul hears about it. And so the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He raises up an army and he goes and he delivers Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites. And, and all this is done by the power of the spirit of the Lord coming upon him. But then there's something that happens in Saul. Saul begins to see the, the kingdom of Israel not as God's kingdom that he's chosen to lead. It's his kingdom to lead. And all of a sudden, it's no longer about the glory of God. It's about the glory of Saul. And that's what he begins to live for. And so he disobeys God. And when that happens, God removes this, his spirit from him. And David is anointed, and the spirit of the Lord comes on David. But then we see Saul, he has he's received this, this harmful spirit sent from God. Not an evil spirit, a harmful spirit. And what that, that means is that, is that this spirit comes, and, and he squeezes Saul's heart so that what's in it becomes visible to everybody else. The true motive and intent of Saul's heart is murderous. And so the spirit comes and he squeezes that heart like a sponge and out it comes. And so without thinking, he picks up that spear and he throws it. This is not an evil thing God is doing. Don't blame God for this and don't blame the spirit for this. The spirit is just simply bringing to light what is already in Saul. So get back Saul used David, Saul was jealous of David, and then he becomes paranoid of David, and that ultimately leads to wanting to kill David. Saul uh, begins to put into uh, motion a plan uh, to, to kill David by the hands of the Philistines. And he, he shows David his, his, his daughter Merib and says, uh, she can be yours, and David is, is actually responds quite humbly, and he says, I don't deserve to be uh, the son-in-law of, of the king. Uh, but he sends him out into, into combat. And, uh, and Saul's hope is that, that, that David will, will be killed by the Philistines. 
and it doesn't happen. Instead, uh, David defeats them, and he comes back, and he's, he's even gained more notoriety and more fame and more glory, and, and this makes Saul even in matter. So he has a second daughter, and this time he, he's going to use a little bit of deception. He's going to try to convince David that he can earn his daughter, that he can uh, get a chance to, to, to earn her hand in marriage if he'll go out and he'll, he'll slay 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins. So David does, and being the ultimate overachiever, he brings back 200. And so he comes back, and, 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 and Saul didn't get his way. Saul didn't, didn't see David die in combat with the Philistines. So once again, he's, he's let down. In, in chapter 18, verse 29, we read this. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continuously, continuously. Chapter 19 begins with Saul trying to bring Jonathan in on the murder plot. But Jonathan loves David. Jonathan honors David. Jonathan is bound to David. Jonathan is willing to give up his throne to David. Jonathan and David are on the same team. And so Jonathan actually rebukes his father. He actually confronts his father. And he says, this is the guy that stood in the gap between us and our enemy. This is the guy that saved us from the Philistines. This guy is innocent and this guy is righteous. What you're doing is wrong. He stands up for David and for the truth. And for a moment, Saul agrees. Saul checks himself. He he checks his heart and he steps back. But it doesn't last very long because it's not too long before once again David is in his presence playing the lyre and once again Saul's heart is squeezed and he picks up another spear and he throws. David runs again. So Saul sends more assassins. He sends assassins to his house. And Michael, his wife, rescues him and, and gets him away from the house. And, and, and David then runs to Samuel up at Ramah. And Saul finds out where he is, and so he sends more assassins, and they fail. And he sends more assassins, and they fail. And then he decides to go himself. And here, once again, we see that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, and he prophesies again. But this time it's different. This time he's not prophesying in a way where he's revealing the words of God. This time it's like this frenetic craziness where he strips down naked for a day and a night and just mumbles. It's like he's losing it. And see, in the first instance where he prophesied and he declared the words of God, people looked at that and they were like, is Saul also among the prophets? It's this good and positive thing. But now they see him naked rolling around on the ground, mumbling incoherently and like, is Saul also among the prophets? It's a completely different attitude. God was raising Saul up. He was giving him his spirit. He was enabling him to be king. But then all of a sudden, Saul decided to glorify himself. And so God crushes him and brings him low. Once again, David escapes. In chapter 20, what we find is that uh, David comes to Jonathan. He's lamenting about what he's experiencing at the hands of, of Saul. And David he cries out to Jonathan. Jonathan uh, and, and him concoct a plan to determine what the true intent of Saul is. I won't go into that whole story, but, but the end result is, is basically this. Saul, or Jonathan once again uh, stands up for David, rebukes his father, and his father picks up another spear, but this time it's to pin his own son to the wall. To kill his own son because he's aligned himself with David. And chapter 20 ends with the two of them, David and Jonathan, saying goodbye to one another. And David is weeping bitterly. In verse 42, it says this, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever, 
And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. David is now on the run for years. They don't know if they're ever going to see each other again. David is, is continually being hunted by Saul for years after this. Until finally, Saul meets his end. On a hilltop, surrounded by enemies, he dies this bloody, violent death. But David wasn't among the enemies killing him. David would assume the throne, and he would keep his promise to Jonathan. And he would look out for Jonathan's kids. You see, the events of chapters 18, 19, and 20, they, they tell us how it is that people respond to salvation. And we see in Jonathan's response, and we see in Saul's response, that, that you can either love your Savior or you can hate them. Jonathan loved David. Jonathan saw what David did for him in bringing about this salvation for him and for his people, and he loved David. And he honored David, and he bound his soul to David, and he gave up his throne to David. But Saul didn't. Saul would use David, and he would be fearful and jealous of David, and he would be paranoid of David until he would just decide he was just going to kill David. And the reality is that that's how we respond to the cross. Jesus is the better David, who defeated the worse Goliath in sin and death. But the cross becomes the dividing line of history. We, we call Jesus the Prince of Peace. And then he is the Prince of Peace because what he did, did for us on the cross made peace between us and God. But Jesus also said this in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. Going on to say, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I can think of no better illustration of this truth than Jonathan and Saul. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find him. The cross is the dividing line. The cross is the sword. And it presents only two options before every human being that's ever lived. Either you love him or you hate him. Four things I want us to see from this. Here's the first one. When it comes to Jesus and the responses to what he's did for us at the cross, <clears throat> you can love him or you can use him. A lot of people who would identify themselves as Christians, in fact, don't love Jesus. They just want to use him. They'll embrace the name of Christian and they will identify themselves in that way, but it's so that they can use Jesus. He can be my, my lucky rabbit's foot. He can be my genie in the bottle. He can be the one I call on when I need a parking spot. He will be the one I call on when I'm looking for a raise. I will use Jesus for what he can give to me. I will use his people. I will use his law and I'll erase dividing walls between me and other people using his law. I'll use his rules, and I'll beat his, his, the other people over the, the, the head with his rules. And I will use his church to gain social uh, stature among other people. I will use worship of him in order to fill some sort of emotional need in me. And I will use his people for target practice as I pick up my spears and launch them. 
at other people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. People who would use Jesus right up to the point of death and to use his cross as a means of avoiding death and condemnation in hell. And yes, I will use Jesus for heaven so long as that when I get there, you're not actually in authority over me. You can love him or you can use him. To love him is to come to the cross and to see what he's done. To see the Son of God taking on flesh and coming and living every day of his life in such a humble means. The God of the universe, the God of glory in such a small, weak package, living and being arrested and being taken and being killed. And he's the holy one. He's the righteous one. He's the innocent one. And when you take a look at what Jesus has done for you, that because of the cross, your sin is removed. Because of the cross, you've been robed in his righteousness and you stand justified before God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you've been adopted and you are a son and you are a daughter of the most high God. Because of what Jesus has done for you, And when you come face to face with the cross and you see what Jesus has done for you, you can either use him or you can love him. Second, you can honor him or you can be jealous of him. The truth is, is because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross, God the Father resurrected him and he ascended and he sits in power and all dominion and authority has been given to him, and he is the Lord of lords, and he is the King of kings. And you could look at that, and you would say, I don't want him to be in that position. I want to be in that position. You could be jealous, and you could be covetous of the position that he has, and you want to say, I'm the king of me. I'm the ruler of me. I determine my life. Or you can honor him. You could look at your identity and you could strip yourself down of all of those things that you are using to justify your existence. You could hand them over and you can lay them at his feet. You can strip yourself of glory and give him honor. You can honor him or you can be jealous of him. Thirdly, you can bind yourself to him or you can be scared and paranoid of him. Some would look at the authority of Jesus and they would say, I can't trust him. He will hurt me, he will abuse me, he will wound me, and he will strip away my life. It will deuce me. The truth is, is it's just the opposite. That Jesus has come and he was used and he was abused and he was crushed so that we could go free. The kingdom that he provides for us would blow any kingdom that you could create out of the water. We are paranoid of him. But the opposite of this would be to bind ourselves to him, to knit our souls to him, to say to him, I want what you want. I want to love the people that you love. I want to care about the things that you care about. I want to lose my life and gain your life. I want to die to myself in order to live for you. You can bind yourself to him or you can be scared and paranoid of him. Lastly, you can give him the throne of your heart or you can kill him. 
And that's the decision that the cross puts to you. If you would try to save your life, you would lose it. But if you would lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. We come to the cross and we see that there is only one of two options. Either by grace we can be justified because of what he's done. Or we can reject that and be condemned. And we are the ones who put him there. You see, that's why there's only two options. Because all of us are guilty. All of us have sinned against a holy and righteous God, and that bears eternal consequences. There are only two options for us. There's there's not a third way out. You, You can't just come to the cross and say, I had nothing to do with that. That has nothing to do with me. The truth is is that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have put him where he was. And all of us have contributed to the wrath of God that he poured out on Jesus. Because we deserve that cross, but he took it. That's the reality that stands before. Either you come to the cross and you give your your throne over to him. You decide to, to lay it down and to be led by him. The only other thing to do since there can be only one king, let's kill him. Many people have tried to do that in their hearts, to remove God once and for all. Or you can give up the throne. And in so doing, you could find life. If you're here this morning and you've never been confronted with the cross before, You've never realized that the cross actually applies to you. That you have everything to do with it. And you're confronted by what Jesus did for you at the cross. And you want to know what you do from here. You want to know what decision needs to be made. You, you need to know. I would love to talk to you. After the gathering this morning, walk through those doors and make a left. And I'll be around the corner. I'd love to talk to you. I'm going to close with this. One commentator on this passage said that Jonathan was more interested in the Lord's kingdom over and above his own kingdom. Is that true of us, church? Are we more interested in our own kingdom than God's kingdom? Do we look at what Jesus did for us at the cross? Do we want to use that? Are we fearful of it? Are we jealous of him? Do Do we want to remove God from us? Do we want to establish our own kingdom or are we about his kingdom? Would we really pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on this earth, in this moment, here today in me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Do we really want that? Because the reality is, is we live in a world that is full of Saul's fighting for their own thrones. We, many of us, are in conflict ourselves and we want to assume that we're David. We're the innocent ones. We're the righteous ones. And the fact is there was only one innocent righteous one and that was Jesus. And we're not him. The reality is is the conflict that you're facing right now, you're Saul in conflict with another Saul. You're not David. I'm not David. We have a church in conflict. It's not just something that's happening out there in the world. It's something that is happening in here among people, in conflict with one another. 
because we're trying to be Saul. And we're trying to establish our own kingdoms. What would happen if we would love Jesus more than we love ourselves? What would happen if we wanted to honor Jesus more than we want to honor ourselves? What would happen if we wanted to bind ourselves to Jesus instead of holding on to ourselves? What would happen if we wanted to give over our throne to Jesus? What would happen? What would happen in this church, in our relationships? What would happen in our homes? What would happen in our neighborhoods? What would happen in our communities? What would happen if we loved Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how gracious and patient you have been, how loving kind, and yet just. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for standing in the gap between us and our greatest enemy. Thank you for being that stone that crushed our enemy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enable us to embrace King Jesus. Help us to see that it's not about being moral, better. It's simply about trusting and embracing the one who lived the life we couldn't live for us. In Jesus' name.